cake or pie? That's a very easy answer. Pie, always. No! All right. Thank you. That's good. <laughs> Specifically. But I'm not a cream pie eater. I am. Um, I like fruit pies, and I, and I like pecan pie and pumpkin pie and all that. But I will eat any pie that's presented to me. Well, this week we are talking to Chris Hughes with Artifact Bags. Welcome, Chris. Welcome. I, I don't know if welcome is actually fair. We're in his space. We are in his Thanks space. For, uh, I'm welcoming, welcoming you. Yes. Thanks for welcoming us into your it's space. A, it's Thank- a mutual welcome. You're welcoming me to your podcast. <laughs> I am welcoming you into my space. Your space is beautiful. This week we are recording from... Uh, the Artifact Bag Space at about 29th and Leavenworth in a beautiful room. Uh, if you haven't been down to the space, I would really encourage you to come check out. It's got a storefront with some really cool vintage stuff and as well as handmade and just really rad stuff. So come down if you haven't come yet. So can you tell us about the first product you made and sold? Yeah, that that would have been my number 215 lunch tote. Um, I had already been making some totes about that point, but I don't recall ever selling them on Etsy. They, they, I, You know, when you first start out making things, you make some product, you make items for yourself that, you know, resolve personal needs. And then somebody sees that, and then you make some for a friend, and you're just flattered that they even want to use the thing that you made. And then, you know, the progression from there is you start charging people money for it. And, you know, while I was kind of evolving at that point, I threw some stuff up there. And the first thing that actually would sold was that lunch tote. And it was, I sketched that out on a Sunday afternoon. Uh, and then Monday I'd made one <clears throat> to carry my lunch in when I was working at PayPal at the time. So it, and, uh, I, I, I didn't give it a ton of thought. I just, you know, my thought really was, is I needed something to carry my lunch in. And there, at the time there wasn't anything on the internet that I, that I liked. So I made something I liked. And so somebody saw that and. Yeah. Um, there was a style, right? He was, well, this is when blogging was still big. This is 2010. And there was a guy who was writing out of New York. Um, and he was really into made in America and he had a really cool, like he was kind of Ivy style, real East coast, real clean, clean dress. And, uh, I had been following him also because I, I really liked I liked his writing and uh, he discovered it somehow in the bowels of Etsy. I'm not sure even how to this day I don't know how he found my my product. Uh, well, I guess I should preface that by saying I was pretty early on into Etsy. It wasn't it wasn't the the big juggernaut that it is now. Um, it was it was a more intimate community um, and Etsy was a huge help early on. They they did so many fun promotions and in, involved me in that and. Uh, me in many ways um so but yeah he had discovered this and uh he had made some tweets about it and i got followers and got some sales out of that and then the real tipping point was an article that he had published off of his website it was the the uh the 10 things that you should buy somebody for christmas but buy one for yourself as well and my lunch tote was number four on his list and so um shortly after he published that 
there's no doubt in my mind that um, some some heavy hitters were following him because I got product features in like New York Times, Gizmodo, and Uncrate, um, and and that created a such a groundswell. I, I remember when the Gizmodo and when Gizmodo one dropped, um, that almost instantaneously created a 420 bag backlog, <laughs> and I was working by myself in my basement with one sewing machine. So um, that's when I had to abruptly quit my job at PayPal, and that was a fun, fun time. <laughs> sure. Never look back. <laughs> so what is your, the favorite product in your line right now? Jeez. Shouldn't have been asked that. Um, so we make these, we call them culinary aprons, but they're, they're a lightweight apron. <clears throat> They're about an eight to nine ounce twill in their brush, so they've got a really soft hand and a nice drape. And I wear an apron every day at the shop, and I just I like these um, when it's warmer out. They're they're really comfortable, and they keep they save my clothes. But recently, um, I had sourced some material from Japan that's uh, loomed over there, and the quality of these twills are, is incredible. Um, but even more so than that, more important than that is. Uh, I, they're printed in two um, vintage camouflage patterns, and I'm a huge military history nerd. I collect militaria, um, and, and I often wear military uh, stuff, field gear, hats, coats, etc. And so one of the, the, the prints that we got is a reversible World War II um, frogman spot pattern camo, like what the Marines wore on Iwo Jima, if you can remember that. Um, and... The other one is a Vietnam tiger stripe. So think about like Magnum PI in the jungle when he was a Navy SEAL. It's like the camo that he's got on in the in that show. Um, but uh, but yeah, I'm a super nerd about that. And these these are very faithful reproductions. But long story short, I had them put into made into aprons, and I I have one of each, and I just kind of alternate because I just I love them both so much. What sets Artifact apart from people making somewhat similar products? Well, um, I mean, we're very much, I mean, everyone's kind of going in a similar direction. Like, even though I'm, I've got my head down, like, I would say, I mean, what we are doing is, like, we're a micro business. We're vertically integrated. We make everything in-house. This building that we're sitting in right now, it has a retail store, a brick and mortar. It has our complete production facility. This up the second floor of this building where we're actually seated at. Um, we have a photography studio where we're doing all of our stuff in house, and and that that's um, that's a unique thing. Like a lot of companies do that to a certain point, and then they start hiring that stuff out. But whenever we look at the you know you know the the pros and cons of that, we we inevitably will always come back to center and say, uh, we either we can do it better, we can do it more cost effectively. Um, now, as far as other companies, like there's a lot of them have kind of like kind of faded out in the last year or so. Like there's many of the ones who were making things, um, that were handmade, they were making things in house. Many of them have, um, decided for one reason or another that they don't want to do that anymore. And they're still designing and making product, but it's not being made by them. It's being made in LA or it's being made in Vietnam or China or whatever. Um, so... 
And I think, you know, when, when you get several years into this and you understand, like, I mean, Artifact really, it's several businesses. The manufacturing side is it's completely its own entity. It's it's, it's an entirely different different skill set um, than the artifact that's a design house that creates design and and, and builds on this aesthetic. Um, and I can totally understand the people that want to design products and they want to build a brand, but they don't necessarily want to get inundated with all the manufacturing. The, man, the manufacturing's uh, it's great when it's going well, but it's horrible if, when there's a problem. So you mentioned your staff. How many people do you have working for you these days? Oh, boy. Um, okay. Let's say 12. Is that as large as Artifact has been? What What's growing Artifact looked like for you? Oh, I mean, yeah. The 12 is definitely, like, that's a new, that's a new high. Um we just uh, we're trying to scale up, and uh, and we we need we need additional help. We need more sewers. Um, we're we're getting more into the B two B and like wholesale side. So the apron orders are, you know, they're not like a dozen or two dozen. It's like five hundred, and so we just we got all hands on deck trying to trying to keep up with that volume. And I also hired a we've got an account manager who's out there closing. Uh, sales um, that we didn't have before, and and a lot of those people would make inquiries, and some of them I just I inevitably dropped the ball on because I just I had so many other things I was dealing with, um, and so she's handling all that and more, and so it's creating this pipeline that we are, uh, you know, we're doing a lot better with it than I anticipated. Uh, our sales volume has been up quite a bit, and and the, really the only thing that's that's noticeable is the fact that our production um, space is too small now. <clears throat> sure. So with that growth and I mean, 500 aprons is a huge number for your space. Has there been any temptation to no longer make the bags here in Omaha? Never. No. I mean, the solution to that is just to get a bigger space. I, I don't, I've never been interested in outsourcing. I just, for me, um, my commitment to making, uh, a well-made product. I just, I, I mean, it's not that it can't be done. I know people that manufacture things abroad, uh, whether that's in Los Angeles or even in China. Um, but the amount of diligence that they have to keep, I mean, the, this one guy who makes jeans out of Kansas city, he was telling me that, well, he makes all types of apparel, but like when they run, uh, like maybe they do some like knits or something down in the garment district he'd actually send somebody there to practically sleep on the production floor just to keep eyes on on them, making sure they didn't drift and, and the end product was exactly what they agreed upon. And, and, and he's very successful and other people I've talked to are successful with that. But for me, it's just like Omaha is just, it's a really good location um, to be doing manufacturing out of. With such a large team now, what does your day-to-day look like? Uh, well, I can, I'll describe just like an average day. Um, so I drop the kids off at school and then I get in here about nine 30 and, uh, Erica, our operations, uh, manager, she's, she would have showed up by that point. And then we have a morning meeting and we talk about all the things that, uh, we need to be doing today, the things that have to be done this week, the stuff that we need to be thinking about this quarter. 
And then if there's time or I'm in the mood, we'll talk kind of about like 2019 goals um, and just kind of make sure we're on track with that. And then we just uh, split off and uh, she's, you know, sometimes she's training new staff. That's what we've been doing a lot of the time. She's, she's, she does that. Um, I'll be working on new product design, um, maybe talking with our account manager about certain, like most of the wholesale, like there's usually some custom element to it, uh, kind of negotiating that stuff. Um, and, uh, overseeing fulfillment and, and just, you know, it can be, it can be a lot of things. I mean, it could be a machine that's broken that, I mean, I'm really the only one that can fix that. So, um, I, I'll, I'll have to do that one day or, uh, maybe I'm sourcing new equipment, um, and, uh, or talking with the account and maybe trying to, you know, like we've been, we've implemented a lot of new software lately. So I've been vetting, um, a lot of that type of stuff and just making sure that stuff works, um, so the, the days are somewhat varied, but, um, oh, and I, and I do a lot of, for now I'm doing a lot of the marketing side of it. Like today I was up here doing a photo shoot for some new products that we're releasing and I wanted to have, um, a lot of photographs to coincide with that for when we do our mailings and all that other stuff. So I mean, I, I still wear a lot of hats. Yeah. Sounds like it. So you're you're no longer sort of directly involved in the day to day manufacturing. You're not sewing bags at this point. Actually, I am still. There's there's a couple products that I st- we just for one reason or another I haven't we haven't trained anyone else to do them, and so I I've, I still make every one of them. They're not. I mean, it's not like a lunch tote or something that we're like. It's a high volume piece. Um, I can make reasonable batches, um, but honestly, probably over the next six months. Uh, that that will have people absorb that stuff as well, because I just right now at this point for the goals that we've set, I I I just as much as I love to make product, I I I have a responsibility to be uh, marketing the products that we have, designing new product, and and forging relationships with people. A lot, I mean, I do a lot more meetings than I ever thought I would. That that's um, that's an inevitable thing. Uh, the uh, at this, at this point where I'm at. What's your favorite part of running artifact? I like, I mean, I'm a product guy. So like I, I always, I will always love uh, developing new products. Um, just the R and D of that and just uh, working out sourcing materials, um, implementing that the new materials with maybe new equipment, new folders or machines just to try to figure out how, you know, the, the, the the conundrum of it is is you know I I'll conceptualize a design and um, I really don't think about the inputs or the costs of it at that time and then we work backwards and say okay this is what I would think would be the best solution for whatever this is whatever bag and then um, we cost it out and sometimes it just the uh, you know the that product mar- product market fit just isn't there the consumer threshold they're not going to buy you know um, the product for what, what it's going to cost labor and materials. And so sometimes, you know, oftentimes we have to scuttle things because I just don't want to like dilute this concept so that we can make the numbers work. I, I just assume not have it exist at all if I can't get my way. Um, what's a product like that? Like what, what's something that you won't release or, or we won't see in the artifact website for sale that. Oh, like, 
you know, like an all-leather backpack um, to make it the way I want, it's going to put it at a retail price that just, you know, I, I was, I've been told by a lot of retails, retailers there's kind of like this, uh, there's like a $300 threshold with a backpack. You go north of that and, and you're going to hear some crickets chirping. They're just that the people, the perception of that, unless you're like a really – um, you know, boutique brand and like you've got some cachet and some hype and, you know, uh, you know, there's always exceptions to that. But if you're, if you're out there trying to make a durable good and you make a, a solid backpack, like there, there's just certain points where when you go beyond that now an all leather backpack, people are going to understand those materials are going to be a higher price, but there's just certain ones. And a lot of it's my gut too. We'll make something and we'll, we'll prototype it or we'll cost it out. And I'll just go, ah, just, you know, that's, it's already hard enough to sell something that's a priced well. I mean, to sell something that you feel that kind of makes you think, oh, that's 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 going to be that's spendy there. Um, you know, it's, there's so many other products I can look at and address. Uh, yeah. the, the one thing that like I can't manufacture is more hours in a day, and like even today we were working on these photos, and I, to this day I still can't proficiently do illustrator and photoshop not i can if i had to if you said you know you're gonna win a prize if you do this all by yourself well fine i'll do this then but like it's i'm not fluid i'm not it's not fluid with me so i i work with erica a lot on that and like you know i'm just at a better place now where it's like yeah we could go and look through a five thousand more fonts to decide what that's going to be. But if I, if I, as we scroll through 20 and then one that stood out to me, it's like, let's just go with that. I mean, and part of what helps me with that is like the pace of marketing now. So let's say you're going to make like an ad for Instagram or whatever. That the shelf life of that, that thing that you've rendered in illustrator, it's like minutes. Like they see it for like, <laughs> yeah, like, like yesterday morning, yesterday. Yeah. Okay. So like Nick Offerman, uh, his, he's got a, he's a, he was the, he's the actor that was in Parks and Rec. He played Ron Swanson. So he's a, he's an avid woodworker and he's really good. Um, and he's got a wood shop out in California and he's got staff and they all, they're making things, but, uh, for, somehow they found me and they ordered a bunch of aprons and, um, and there was a, there was a post on Instagram yesterday morning of him wearing one of the artifact aprons. And I was like, man, that's, that's great. And, um, and it was like, and he got a ton of likes and I got a ton of likes and it's like that, let's call that an accolade. You've got a celebrity that like endorsed that product. That was, that was over by noon. Like (laughs) that moment had moved on. And if you look, if you go onto his, um, Instagram profile and you look at his post, like he had like 230 comments like made in the first hour of that post and then none after. Because those people even and and it was crippling because as you as you think about like how we can be better at marketing, well shit, this guy's got like two hundred and sixty five thousand Instagram followers and he can't even maintain people's attention for longer than a couple hours. Wow. You know, so what am I supposed to do? Like how am I supposed to deal with that? Like uh it's it's the world is so transient right now. Um and 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 oh like I was in Magnolia Journal not that long ago. That's like they're a big thing. They're kind of like the new Martha Stewart. And uh, and uh, I I got a product, like a product feature in there. And 
you know, everyone's like, oh, that's going to be so big. But like the amount of like attributable sales and attention that comes off of that is a fraction of what it would have been three or four years ago. So we, I don't, human attention span is circling the drain. And, and so it's like, so part of me is like, I really need to ramp this up. But then the other part is like, why? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Why bother? That's, that's incredible to think that eight years ago, somebody tweeting about your bag, like, legitimately yeah. got everything going. Right. Changed your life and with one tweet. Now Nick Offerman posts a picture of him wearing your apron and it's like, sure, that's, yeah, it was nice. Yeah. It was like in the blink of an eye. It was <laughs> like, you felt you've got a warm fuzzy and then on, they're on to something new. Uh, and people ask me this question a lot. Uh, they're always like, what would it be like if you started Artifact in 2018? I'm like, I don't think there would be an artifact. I mean, timing was everything back then. I There weren't all these people in this DIY maker scene. Like, I'm an elder statesman now at this point. And, and a lot of the people that came in after me, they realized that it was hard work. And it just, like, there was a time when the Internet was just a lot more democratic. I, I built artifact on um, on blogging. That was a big part of it. I would write a lot of rich content about these pieces of equipment that I was finding and refurbishing. And and more interesting than that is people actually read those posts. They read them. Now, like, um, I made a bunch of videos, uh, and they were just real DIY. We had, like, a gimbal with an iPhone, and, and, and they were good. They were fine. And I had some marketing people look at them, and they were about three and a half to four minutes apiece, and they were like, you can't possibly expect someone to watch this video for four minutes. What are you thinking? They're like, these need to be a minute 30 tops. And it's like, what the hell can you tell anyone in a minute and 30 seconds? <laughs> like, what? what is... So then I had uh, one of the people that works for me. I said, bad news. These need to be edited down to a minute and 30. And to get the things that I needed to say uh, distilled into one minute and 30, they look like a TMZ video. It was like, poop, 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 cut, cut, cut. Like, because I couldn't, I was like, I can't even follow this <laughs> yeah yeah that's fair i think that uh, i appreciate a well-made video that helps me understand why this thing uh is important and should cost as much as it does because i think like a lot of people i have that first inkling of wow that seems like a lot for whatever the product is but when you know the story behind it when you can uh feel like you've met the person that made it when you understand what's gone into creating that product, you understand the value of that product um, as being more than the $10 bag that you can pick up at Target. That There's something to be valued in, you know, uh, an $80 uh, canvas tote, which is not uh, astronomical by any means or, or out of line by any means, but there's a value to that piece that sort of people don't understand unless they know the story behind it. Yeah, absolutely. They do. What product have you been surprised by the reception of it, you know, that you didn't think was going to be a hit and ended up being a hit? And conversely, what product did you think was going to be much more popular that didn't quite enjoy the popularity you expected? Well, to answer the first part of that question, aprons, uh, Right from the get-go, I made myself a shop apron, and uh, 
I didn't really think much about it. I mean, I I've, I collect antique aprons. That's one of the, I collect a lot of stuff, and that's something I've acquired over the years, like early like denim Hercules aprons and like super early canvas farrier aprons and stuff like that. Um, and I wanted to make something that really kind of had the spirit of those old aprons, but yet kind of function for a more modern maker. Um, and so I was over at my shop. By this point, I would have moved out of my basement. I was over on Farnham Street, 26th and Farnham, uh, where we worked out of for up until about two years ago. And people would come in the shop periodically to purchase something in person or just to see what I was about. And I would get a lot of comments where they just they loved my apron. It was a, like a wax canvas apron. <clears throat> and I, uh, at some point, somebody that had been working for me said, you should sell those. You should sell those aprons. And, uh, well, actually, someone wanted to buy my apron. And I'm like, well, it's, it's just my shop apron. And they're like, well, would you make one for me? And I'm like, eh. I'm just, like, sitting there thinking. And then someone piped up and, like, you really should make aprons. People come in here and they always comment on them. And uh, so that, I would say, would be a real good example of something that I just wasn't even, it wasn't even in my mind. I, I had so many bag designs that I was thinking about and just wanting to flesh out that category. Um, and then from that point, you know, everyone was, like, buying my wax canvas aprons, and they were using them in, like, kitchens and barbecue and this and that. And I'm like, well, I wouldn't do that. I mean, that they're hot, you know, <laughs> in a kitchen. So then it kind of forced me to be like, in lieu of like, I needed something to tell them, you know, here's an alternative. So then that's when we got into the culinary aprons. And then that was just a whole other, you know, that was just another frontier um, that we, and it's been great. Um, now, as far as a product that I've, I mean, oh, a lot of my products are like slow grows, you know, like, like I remember even with the rucksack, our little our backpack, people asked me for years for a backpack. They wanted a backpack. They wanted a backpack. And so I finally thought, all right, I think the truth of it was like my kids were getting school age and I just they wanted a backpack. So that kind of probably was what tipped the scale. So I designed this backpack and it didn't do a damn thing for a while. I mean it just trickled. And I thought, man, I spent a lot of time developing this product and they're kind of bitch to make and uh, a lot of steps involved and then I don't know what happened like after that thing had been out for about a year all of a sudden just like wholesale and and direct sale people are like oh he's got backpacks it's like, I've had them <laughs> I've been promoting them even like yeah. I actually tried to promote those and then I mean damn we had an order recently for how many was that it was a I want to say it was like 160 backpacks or something. Wow. Wow. And that, we, that got crazy. We ended up buying, I bought a better grommeting machine and stuff like that where like, it was like, it, it cut, it cut the time of just putting those grommets around the lip of the bag. It reduced that by like a quarter of the time. Uh, and that was really good. Thousands. That was thousands of grommets, thousands that had to be set on those. So for perspective, how long does a rucksack take you to make? Ah, uh, that's okay. So we cut all the stuff out for, you know, all the all the pieces. Um, so not factoring that time. If somebody gets a bin and it's got the components for a rucksack and they're going to sit down to the machine and sew it, I would say they could get that um, less than an hour. 
But that's see. But here's the thing, though. It's kind of like Donkey Kong at, at Artifact. Like when you're at level one and you're sewing lunch totes, if you can jump over those flaming barrels and you can climb up those ladders without getting killed, then you go to le- the second level of Donkey Kong. And maybe that's going to be like the campus totes and and the one fifteens. Now, if you manage to make it through that without a flaming barrel getting you. Um, then you go to the next level. And so, like, by the time you're sewing those rucksacks, you're, like, at a zen level of sewing. Sure. Like, you're, you're, you're damn near making them with your eyes closed, not on a carrot stick, listening to a podcast, you know? Like, <laughs> right, right. Like you're not – no, I'm, I'm exaggerating. But, no, you, if you watch the people that can make those, it's, it's quite a spectacle. So when you say in an hour, you're not – I mean, you can make it in an hour, some of your, you know – I don't know if I can make it an hour at this point. I'm I'm a little soft. Uh, I I I'm not. A, I I bet it'd take me an hour and a half to make one. So one of the things that uh, I've seen through your social media is, and you've mentioned it uh, here, your sort of love affair with tools and equipment, and you sort of collect. I've seen you collect sewing machines and sort of vintage uh, machines. What is your favorite tool? I don't know. I always get new favorites. We just got, we call them the twins. We just got these two Adlers in and they're, they're for sewing garment weight, but they're just like, they're like NASA level sewing machines. I mean, they got electromagnets in them and that for the, for they got auto lift, auto back tack, auto forward tack, auto thread trim. They don't even run on a belt. They're direct drive. They, they don't even have like, they don't even, they don't over where the, the, the where the needle bar is there's they don't even have oil over there so it doesn't drip on your workpiece uh, i mean i can go on and on about these so things. do they have needles or are they using lasers now no they still use needles that they haven't gotten past that point um but yeah i mean they're just like they're crazy compared to what i started out on uh they're they're you get stuff like that and then you start looking around your sewing floor and being like all right what else is on the plank <laughs> what else is getting pushed off the plank, you know, because it's like, I mean, and even just for, from a production, I mean, particularly from a production standpoint, like if you're not trimming your own threads anymore and you've got an auto auto uh, foot lift and like, I mean, dang, like you amortize that out over a work week or a work month or a work year. I mean, that's like you can make so much more product. And and the people that are using the machines, they don't have to fight the machine the the feed dogs on this thing it's such a i mean it's grossly overpowered for what it's doing right now so you're not your forearms over the course of a day and your hands like they just you get tired when you have to like fight the machine to work the material if you're pushing it through the throat of it or you know doing that so a lot of these machines um they're just they're better in that regard as well uh but uh, other favorite oh god i got a really cool machine recently uh i upgraded my bell blade Leather Skyver. I had one that just gave me fits. This thing, Hold and it on. was. What's a bell blade leather Skyver? Yeah, we gotta we gotta break this down because <laughs> we don't have a glossary. Yeah. Okay. So so when you're skiving leather, you're basically paring leather down into uh, you know, a thinner. You know, you're diminishing the thickness of it. Um, and a lot of and most most of the time, you're going to be doing that on like the on the edges of the leather piece where the seams of the bag are. Because when you sew that seam and you turn the bag, a lot of most bags are made inside out, and then you turn them right side. You don't want all that bulk there because it creates like a ripple. It doesn't have a clean, finished look. It's really that when you paring the leather down is kind of what separates the mice from the men. Like it's in in, in like amateur versus like more professionally finished bags. 
So this bell blade skyver, it's kind of hard to describe without a visual, but imagine you've got like a custard dish in this machine and the lip of that dish is razor sharp. So that thing's spinning around. And then there's just this whole like labyrinth of little belts under there that do um, the it. Mine has one motor operation, so when you engage the clutch of that motor and it runs, it runs all these, this belt that runs around all these various pulleys that is spinning that blade, operating a feed wheel that's pushing the material towards the blade, but then also passively uh, running a sharpening stone under the thing as well because you have, to, you have to hit that blade with a stone a lot. And so it does all this stuff underneath the chassis of, the, of this huge cast chassis of this machine uh, but where it's special to me is like this thing is just solid built. Um, it's got the, the the finishing of it is just exponentially better than the one that I had. The one that I had, if you set it up in to be at one setting and you never touch it, it'll be okay. Won't be great. It'll be, just be okay. This one, you can. I mean, you can feather that edge out. You can. I mean, there's infinite capabilities of adjustment on these things. They've got different. Uh, uh, different knobs and uh, adjustment. But anyways, this this thing, it's made it to where, like, we can, like, we can pare that leather down to paper thin. We can work with much thinner leathers and much more supple leathers, like Italian leathers. So it's enabling me to just broaden the type of products that we can make. Um, and and it's interesting, like, because for years I was always I was like, well, I already have one of these tools. Well, I did, but I didn't. That tool was kind of like it didn't it couldn't perform at the level that this one can. So we'll throw some photos up of the equipment that Chris is talking about, so you can see uh, see what he's talking about. So we've talked uh, a little bit about how you've been doing this for a while, eight years. You, you've seen a lot of other makers in Omaha and in the region kind of come up and maybe go away in that time. Uh, we like to highlight other makers uh may, maybe that need highlighted that people might not have heard of or that are just doing a great job uh yeah so who are who are some makers in the midwest that you admire or want to highlight well i mean there's i've gotten really close with jamie feinstein over the years and uh you know we we you know we both are family men and we we uh really take pride in our work and he is Absolutely, one of the most skilled craftspeople I that that not just around here, but uh, just that I've met. Um, he's a jeweler, uh, and he he worked came out of fine jewelry, um, was a bench jeweler, and um, and he you know he offices out at bench with you guys. You've known him for years too, but I I am continually fascinated by him, um, and I have no doubt in my mind that if he decided tomorrow that he wanted to do any other medium, he'd just kill it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Dude, the dude can handle business. Like, <laughs> yes. uh, and, but, but he's so like self-deprecating that it's hilarious. Uh, like, I, I mean, he has, he's got, he's got major skills and Emily with object enthusiast. I've been absolutely fascinated by her from the get go. Her just, just from top to bottom, like her understanding of, of her craft, her aesthetic, the way she communicates her aesthetic, her branding. I mean, it's just, it's absolutely flawless. Uh, mm -hmm. I've, yeah. I, I've admired so much about her too, you know, just, uh, 
I probably I I was so sad when she moved to Kansas City because I felt like like she could damn near mentor me or something. Like there was there were so <laughs> many things that I thought, God, I wanna I would love to just peek behind the curtain and see how you just make it look so easy for everyone else. Um and uh and and I mean there's just there's so many. I mean I I, I it's hard to like those are two in particular that I've just that have particularly fascinated me. Um but 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 really all the people that have worked out of your space at, at Bench, um, you know, whether it's Heather Keita um, or it's the Hootens uh, with their photography or it's Earth and Joy, um, you know, I, I commend anyone that uh, Julia Mason uh, with her watercolor work, she does beautiful work. I mean, there, I, anyone that, like, takes that plunge and they roll sleeves up and they say, all right, this is not a hobby now. This is, this is, this is an, an outward expression and I'm gonna have, and I'm monetizing this, and I'm and I'm gonna take this to a new level. I mean, I tip my hat to anyone that does that. I was there. I've been there. It's 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 um it's God. It's got really high highs and really low lows. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. But yeah, and then I mean, there's just makers everywhere that um that intrigue me, and and the ones the ones that like. You know, and you know them. I'm not gonna. You know that they're out. They they see an opportunity, or they think they see an opportunity. I don't really. You know, that's fine. You know, get your hustle on. But it's the people that are like, I'd be doing this even if it wasn't successful. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. that's the one where you're just like, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. absolutely. That that's that's because if I if I wasn't doing artifact, I'd be doing something else. I love it, and it's crazy that this happened this way, and they're. Many mornings I wake up and think, is this all a big dream? Like, what, what, <laughs> yeah. what the hell is this about? And you and I both, we were on the billboard, Ben and I, <laughs> like with the first national when they're doing a shout out for local business. It's like, what the hell is that? <laughs> I've seen both billboards. <laughs> yeah. I saw Ben's billboard at the airport last night. Yeah, it's like that's what? a surreal feeling. It is surreal because it's like, and I'm I'm sure you probably have experienced this, but the reception that Omaha has had from that, I thought it was kind of cool, like on a bucket list kind of level. Like it's wow, I never even yeah. didn't even make my bucket list because I didn't even. <laughs> who would think of being on a like who does that? And then so now all these people that approach you that like they really feel like um, you've done something. And we have. We've done something, but, like, we were doing that long before the billboard happened. Uh, <laughs> right, and long after that billboard comes down, you'll yeah. still be doing it. That's great. Well, before we wrap up, is there anything else that you would like people to know about Artifact? I'd like you to know that my physical address here is 2709 Leavenworth. We're open Monday through uh, Friday from 10 to 6. We're open Saturday from 11 to 4. And we've got our retail store is very much home goods slash sensible gifts. We sell anything from a lot of the things we source uh, from where I, I, I'm seeking out the best product. So if, if our kitchen brushes come from Germany, that's where they're going to come from. If our toothpaste comes from Italy, then so be it. If our stationery comes from Japan. Uh, but we just have uh, just different items that um, I've curated that I feel like kind of are, we didn't make them, but they're an extension of our brand. They help to tell our brand story. Um, and, uh, it's a neat little shop. It's worth a visit. Absolutely. It's definitely worth a visit. Stop on by and check out the stuff. It is fantastic. Well, Chris, uh, where can people find you online? You can find us at artifactbags.com. 
and you can follow uh, my daily comings and goings, uh, or artifacts, that is, at uh, on Instagram, at Artifact Bags, and tune into our stories. I kind of, I definitely go on tangents. That's where you can see all the camouflage aprons. Absolutely. You've been listening to Build Things Better with your hosts, Ben Peterson and Zach Reinhardt. If you liked this episode and want to hear more of our episodes, please subscribe and you'll be notified when each new episode drops. To see photos of the products mentioned in today's episode, head over to benchomaha.com slash podcasts or find us on Instagram at Build Things Better. Our intro music was written and performed by Leslie Wells for Flyover Country. Thanks for listening. Generally, if it's got a crust, I want to eat it. That's, that's a simple rule there. Well, should I make a hand fart or something? Yeah, please. <laughs> please. <laughs> this has been your elder statesman, folks. Yes. <laughs> and that wasn't my hand. <laughs> you trolls. <laughs>